Hi, and welcome to the Ethnos New Brunswick podcast. We're so glad you're joining us. Ethnos is a new organization looking to join in the holistic, community-transforming work happening in Highland Park and New Brunswick. Part of that includes thinking about the spiritual health and vitality of our community. Each week, our gathering is meant to give our community a safe and helpful place for that. Today's episode, What Does It Mean to Be Gay and Part of the Family? is the fourth in our series called Family, Is It Possible? With the conversation being led by guest speaker Peter Volk. Well, we're going to transition now then into our time of discussion and reflection about our spiritual journey, specifically uh, as it relates to Jesus and how Jesus is our ultimate guide for our spiritual journey. We talk about that every week here, that Jesus uh, is a unique guide for us, and uh, especially as we talk about the issue of family, the series that we've been on, this family series. And uh, today is a uh, really unique Sunday because it's, first of all, the last Sunday in our discussion of family. What does it mean to be family together? But it's even more unique in that we have a special guest with us to talk about the last topic in this series, which is what does it mean to be gay or lesbian and a part of the family of God? Uh, This is an important topic for us here at Ethos, for our city, for our community, because we really believe God is calling us to be a a place for all people. And so what does that mean? How does that actually work out especially as it relates to sexuality, specifically the area of uh, being gay and lesbian, if, if we identify that way. A couple of caveats before I invite up our speaker to just kind of guide us through this time. Obviously, with a topic like this, it is very uh, multi-layered and multifaceted. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of things here this morning, but we can't cover everything. And so um, that's something that should be noted. Second of all, this is definitely a process, right? This is a conversation that is, needs to be ongoing. Uh, we, because we can't talk about everything here, that means it's just a process that we need to talk through. In fact, um, and, and Peter, our speaker, will be sharing, uh, he'll actually be coming back four weeks from now, or three weeks from now, to do part two of this conversation. And the leadership of Ethnos, we're going through a multi, like, multi-month, actually multi-year process of becoming and get getting better at becoming a place that helps LGBT people thrive in their faith. And so this is a process that we're all going to be going on. Um, as a result of this, let me just make it pretty clear that I think not all of us will be happy with everything that's said, right? Like, let's just be honest. Some of us will really like some parts, but not really like other parts of this conversation, and others of us will feel the exact opposite about those different same things, right? And so I think the key for a conversation like this, as with our whole family series that we've been going through, is to make sure we're humble, make sure we're kind, make sure we're loving, and make sure we're open to not just what our speaker has to say, but also what God may be inviting us into. This is a journey. This is a process. Let's be open to that process. And so without further ado, I want to invite up Peter uh, Valk. Peter, if you could come on up. Let's give Peter a hand. Um, 
Peter and I met actually uh, last year at a conference, uh, probably one of the largest conferences in the United States for uh, LGBTQ persons and, and uh, who are looking to understand Jesus and follow Jesus. And uh, it was a really a real honor for me to meet Peter there. After I heard his story and saw what he did, I was like, oh, man, we really need to have Peter guide us here as a community. So, Peter, thanks so much for being here. Glad to be here. Yeah, so uh, I'm not from around here. Uh, and uh, you can tell that because I don't handle the cold well. Um, those of us from the, the South will second-guess job offers. Uh, from cities where it's colder, uh, or second-guess marrying someone um, with outlaws from uh, cold parts of the country. That's what we call in-laws in the South. Uh, so when I told my roommates that I'd be out of town this weekend uh, teaching out a community, um, mostly to make sure they knew that they were taking care of my dog, uh, they asked me where I'd be. And uh, when I said uh, I'd be in New Jersey, my friends from the South asked, uh, why would you schedule a training with the community up north in the middle of winter? Um, and then the obligatory harassing came from my friends who come, uh, who uh, moved to the south from up north, uh, making fun of my uh, thin southern blood and my inability to be in the cold. Um, you'll also tell that I'm not from around here because of my accent. A little bit of that might come out. Um, some of you might hear it more than others, uh, but preaching is a little bit like drinking in the fact that uh, 30 minutes in, whatever accents or strained phrases your family uh, used growing up starts to come out. So you might hear a little bit more of that going forward. Um, a little bit about me and why I'm here with you all this weekend. Um, one day a week I work at a counseling center in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, meeting with undergraduate students, uh, navigating questions about faith and sexuality and identity. And then the rest of the week, I lead a ministry called Equip, and we're a team of missionary consultants committed to helping uh, communities uh, of, of believers become places where gay people can belong and thrive according to a uh, biblical sexual ethic. And we'll get into some of each of those pieces a little bit later. So that's why I met with your leaders yesterday. Um, they believe that God put this world together in a particular way. Uh, and that if we want to enjoy the most goodness and beauty uh, and meaning this life has to offer, then we need to seek to understand God's plan for this world. Simply put, God knows that what's best for us. Um, so as followers of Jesus, we should seek to understand God's wisdom and then uh, live into to that and on all things in our life, including what to do with our, our sexuality. But followers of Jesus have historically done a pretty crummy job of loving gay people and offering gay people those best things that God wants to offer. So our uh, time this weekend was spent uh, deepening uh, our understanding of the challenges that gay people face and what God wants to offer gay people. And then a month from now when I come back, uh, myself and the, the group of leaders that we met yesterday, we're going to meet again and we're going to explore how uh, Ethnos can love gay people inside and outside of this community well and what steps mean, need to be taken to make good on that commitment. Um, but this morning, I want to focus on how each of you can think carefully about sexuality. So I'm going to share my story. Uh, I'm going to explain why I believe what I believe about sexuality. Um, I'm going to invite the straight people in the room uh, to love gay people well in some specific ways. And then I'm going to offer some suggestions to the uh, gay people in the room of how y'all might find uh, uh, thriving in your life as, as believers. Um, 
And I want to be clear before I share my story that it's just one story. Um, while my story has many common elements uh, found in the stories of other sexual minorities, every person's story is different. For example, I am a Christian. Uh, I am gay. I am white. I am a man. I feel comfortable being a man and with masculinity. Some of you aren't sure about this whole Jesus thing yet. Many of you are women. Many of you are people of color. Um, some of you might be are transgender. Uh, in particular, I want to note that I'm, I'm not going to talk about gender identity or how our churches should better welcome and minister to transgender people today. I think that's a really important topic, and I think that needs uh, its its own space and its own attention because um, it really does deal with a whole completely different set of, of cultural challenges and theological principles. Um, so we're not going to talk as much about that today, uh, but I think that's an important conversation. And then uh, one last note of qualification before I uh, jump into my story. Uh, I'm going to use the word gay uh, most frequently to, as a general, kind of catch-all term for people who are attracted to other people of the same sex, whether they be gay, lesbian, or bisexual. And I don't mean to communicate anything about these gay people's theological beliefs or anything about the kind of relationships they're seeking uh, by using this word gay. It, it only means, and how I mean to use it this morning is, boys who like boys, girls who like girls. That's how I'm using that word. So I think there's a bigger conversation to be had about um, what words Christians, Christ followers should use to describe themselves. Perhaps we'll get into that question when I'm back in a month. Um, but for now, I'm gonna use this word gay uh, in the ways that I've defined it here. So in sixth grade, I realized that I was gay. And I swore that I would never let anyone know this part of my story. I was really ashamed, I was afraid, and I was alone. But in that loneliness, I desired to be known and loved by God and others around me. I grew up uh, hearing that being gay was bad, that it was dirty, that it was disgusting. When a gay person came up on TV or was seen in public, the people around me commented how gross gay marriage was and how godless gay people were. That's what I heard growing up. If the top topic ever came up in my community of faith, it was a simple statement that God is against homosexuality. That's all I heard. So when I realized that I was gay, it's no surprise that I thought I was bad and dirty and disgusting. I believed I must have done something wrong to deserve this. That's what came to mind for me. So I tried to make deals with God. And this is a pretty common element of people's stories. I, I promised God that I would read my Bible every day for six months if he would make me straight. I held up my end of the bargain, but God didn't. I promised that I would obey my, obey my parents without fail, no change. I stopped playing video games, still gay. Um, time and time again, I, I begged God to, to heal me, to fix me, to make me straight, to make me normal, all these different phrases that came to mind for me then. And despite the fact that uh, um, being gay, at least from how I read scripture, didn't seem to be what God's intentions were for me, time and time again, change in this area didn't seem to be his will. And I didn't know what to do with that. So I was ashamed, and I was also afraid. Um, I was really afraid of people finding out that this was a part of my story. I was afraid that they would reject me, 
Um, in middle school, I played the leading roles in two of our theater productions. I really loved theater. I really loved uh, acting and, and musical theater. But in high school, I quickly realized that all of the same people who were in our uh, theater club were also all the same people who were in our gay-straight alliance. And I was afraid that if I did theater uh, and I hung around those people, that people would assume that I was gay, too. And so I stopped doing theater altogether when I got to high school. Um, gay marriage was a particularly contentious uh, topic during the 2008 election, and that's when part of when I was in high school. And so naturally our government class played out these same divisive conversations that you would have found on CNN at the same time. Um, unintentionally fulfilling a stereotype, I was one of the most ardent opponents of gay marriage in our class. Uh, maybe I was thinking perhaps that I could throw people off my trail if I was against gay marriage enough, I, I don't know. Um, I remember a, a female classmate turning around in her chair and berating me for being a bigot. She said, um, I bet you're secretly gay and one day you're going to come out. You're just so homophobic because you don't want anyone to know who you are. She saw right through me and I was terrified. Um, I kept a straight face then, uh, but yeah, I. To this day, I, I've thought about that story, and when I shared my story for the first time publicly, I reached out to her and said, hey, you were right. <laughs> um, yeah. I think I'm most uh, ashamed of the moments where my fear of being outed and my own disgust of myself turned into homophobia that hurt others. I'm haunted by a scene from high school cross country um, Derek was the only openly gay guy in our school uh, at the time, and he was also on the cross-country team. So as we waited at the starting line one week for a race to begin, everyone paired up for partner stretching. But one by one, as Derek asked people to stretch with him, they said no. They said, gross, I don't want to touch you and I don't want you touching me. And then he got to me and asked me whether I would partner stretch with him and I sheepishly said no, because I was afraid they might think I was gay if I helped him stretch. I uh, dished out the same pain that I had spent tears um, and prayers to soothe to someone else because of my own fear. So I was ashamed, I was afraid, and I was alone. I thought there was no one else like me. I grew up uh, being taught by TV and culture around me, a pretty horrible stereotype of gay people. That all gay people went to group sex parties and they all had AIDS and they were all addicted to drugs and none of them wanted anything to do with Jesus. That's what I heard growing up. Based on that image, I didn't think I belonged among gay people. But on the other side, all the followers of Jesus that I knew were straight, or at least led me to believe that they were straight. Um, and I thought in order to be a good follower of Jesus, I also had to be straight. So then there was me, stuck in the middle between these two things. And I didn't know anyone else like me in the middle. I felt really alone. But it was in this loneliness that a desire to be known and loved grew. When I started to share with my story with others, it was a, it was a mixed bag. Um, one night during a sophomore year of high school, I lay on my bed listening to Come to Jesus by Chris Rice, that might date, might date me. Uh, I was listening to it on repeat, trying to gather the courage, because I didn't know if I could trust anyone, but I couldn't handle being alone and ashamed anymore. So I finally mustered up the courage, I walked downstairs, 
and I told my parents that I was gay. They didn't know how to help me any more than I knew how to help myself. Uh, but it was still a great relief because I wasn't alone in this secret anymore. Toward the end of high school, I shared my story with a youth pastor. Um, one night during a, a youth conference weekend, uh, one of these large youth conferences with big worship events and experiences and uh, funny comedians who were you know, emceeing the event. And then we get back to our, um, our, our big log cabin in, in Gatlinburg in the, in the Smoky Mountains that the whole youth group was staying. And it's a pretty typical experience, at least for me growing up. And um, the uh, youth pastor gave a devotion about, about shame and about being stuck in our lies and our secrets and, and, our, and the things we're hiding from others and encourage us all to, to share with a, a youth pastor or a, a leader um, if there was something we were hiding, if there was something that we were ashamed of so we could bring it out into the light so we weren't alone in that anymore. So I said, okay, well, I shared with my parents a couple of months ago. Maybe I'll share with my youth pastor and this will go okay. Um, so I talked to my youth pastor. Uh, I shared my deepest secret and he was silent. And then he stumbled over a couple of Christian cliches, and then he sent me on my way. So that was pretty painful. Um, throughout college, I devoted myself to a, a campus ministry at the college that I was at. I followed every instruction of my mentor. I led uh, studies of Jesus' scriptures and teachings. I represented the organization to the university that I was a part of. I planned recruitment efforts. I was given every reason to believe that if I wanted to join this campus ministry uh, after I graduated on staff that I could. And then without warning, I was told during my senior year uh, not to apply to go on staff with this campus ministry at this campus or to apply for any other university. The only explanation I was given was, we don't know what to do with you and your same-sex attractions. That hurt. Thankfully, most responded to my story with, with love and compassion. Um, during my sophomore year of college, uh, there was a gay brother who was kicked out of the Christian fraternity that I was a part of. So I decided I needed to take the scary step of sharing my story with the uh, entire group of guys, that entire group of, of, of uh, fraternity brothers. Because I needed straight brothers in this fraternity to know how to love people like me better. And I, needed, I wanted the gay brothers in this fraternity to know that there were people like me and to know that they weren't in this alone. So my fear of being shunned by sharing my story um, turned to surprise, joyful surprise, as after I shared, brother after brother lined up to give me a hug and opened up their phone because they wanted to schedule a time to get a meal with me and get to know me better. And that was a really powerfully beautiful experience for me. Uh, these men uh, embodied Christ for me better than any church ever has. Um, so after sharing my story with this fraternity, a number of guys who were gay and had similar beliefs as me shared uh, their story with me. And we started making sense of life together. We realized that we were all afraid that following Jesus' scriptures and teachings meant that we might be alone. That was our fear. And also, none of us had pastors or parents who knew what to do with us, who knew how to help us. That was a common experience as well. And that motivated, motivated me to change that. Uh, by my senior year in college, Although I had gotten into medical school, I couldn't shake the feeling that God instead wanted me to go into full-time ministry, helping communities learn how to better love gay people like me. That was seven years ago, 
since then, I got my master's in, in counseling so that I could provide better one-on-one uh, -on -one pastoral care to people like me. And I started Equip, the ministry that I mentioned earlier, uh, with the mission of equipping parents and pastors with the understanding and skills to better love and serve people like me, according to a biblical sexual ethic. And there's that phrase, biblical sexual ethic, again. I've used it twice so far. You're probably wondering what that means and how I understand God thinks about this topic. So let me take a moment to speak carefully about that, about how I think God has invited each of us to steward our sexualities, to steward our capacities for, uh, for romance and for a relationship and for intimacy. Because while I still hold on to maybe some of the core beliefs I had when I was younger, um, I now hold them in a much more nuanced way. Um, I believe that experiencing same-sex attraction, being gay, me finding uh, other guys physically attractive and desiring romantic uh, relationships with them is a result of the fall. What do I mean by that? Uh, that when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, their sin led to a domino effect of brokenness, um, of all of the ways that God had perfectly designed and ordered this world were bent or, or broken as a result of that choice. Because of that brokenness, this world around us, the people around us, even ourselves, are not how, first, how God first imagined us to be. Everything's a little bit off. I don't think that when God first imagined me and, and imagined me being born into a world without brokenness, without sin, a perfect world, that he expected me to be gay. That's my personal opinion. So... Because I was bo born into a broken world, one of the ways I was affected by this brokenness was that I gained these attractions. But I want to be clear that, that being gay, experiencing same-sex attraction is, is not a sin. It, it's a brokenness. It, it's, a, it's a way things aren't supposed to be. It's, a, it's an invitation, a temptation to sin. But God doesn't hold that against me. God doesn't hold my temptations or my involuntary thoughts against me. God does not send people to hell merely because boys are attracted to boys or girls are attracted to girls. And I don't believe that people choose who they're attracted to. I don't think people choose to be gay or choose to be straight. Um, the consensus of scientists is that people develop their sexual attractions through a mix of, of nature and nurture, but people don't choose who they're attracted to. And there's no formula for changing a person's attractions, no proven combination of prayer or counseling or weekend retreats that changes someone's sexual orientation, that makes a gay person into a straight person. Um, but what does Jesus' scriptures and teachings have to say about all of this? Well, as I understand it, and as a majority of followers of Jesus have understood Jesus' scriptures and teachings for the past 2,000 years, uh, God calls all followers of Jesus to celibacy, to refrain from sexual and romantic activity, or Christian marriage with someone of the opposite sex. That's God's plan for followers of Jesus. Uh, there's no context for same-sex uh, sexual activity that God blesses in Scripture. Uh, I guess to put it plainly, I do believe that same-sex sexual activity are sins. Now for me, while I'm not uh, bisexual, I'm not generally attracted to women, I've, I've been in a couple of dating relationships with women where I grew a desire for them specifically. That's a little different. So I knew that if God wanted me to marry a woman, that could work. But more important than that, I, more, than, more important than what I wanted, 
I started asking God about five years ago what he wanted. Would he rather I get married or commit to celibacy? Did he have a preference for me? And about three years ago, I felt strongly that God was calling me to celibacy, as I described earlier. Um, but no one can live alone. None of us are meant to be alone. So I've been exploring the possibility of starting an intentional Christian community with other men who also feel called to celibacy. A monastery, you might say, uh, where we can all find committed family. Because I think we all need family. Now you might be wondering, uh, this understanding is terribly inconvenient for me. It'd be much easier for me if I could be convinced of something else. Um, so how am I convinced that this is the way God sees this? Most people start with these uh, six passages in scripture that some claim uh, directly call gay sex a sin. They're often called the clobber passages. Um, I'm not gonna get into those. I, don't, I, don't, I think they can be meaningful evidence but there's also reasonable ways that people can cast doubt on how convincing those six verses are. So I'm not going to spend time on that. No, for me, what is truly convincing is not these few passages, but is the whole of Scripture. Consistently, Scripture reveals God's design for our life, his hopes for how we could enjoy the most goodness and meaning and beauty in this life. And, and that's God's order for the world, even in the midst of brokenness. So when it comes to what to do with our capacity for romance and sex, God seems to be pretty clear. There are, are two options for followers of Jesus. Celibacy or Christian marriage with someone of the opposite sex. Um, Jesus and Paul had a lot to say about both of these. They praised both and described both as having a specific design. In um, Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7, they spoke of a committed celibacy where one gives up uh, romance and marriage and sex and children to do kingdom work, parents have a hard time finding the time and energy to carry out. Uh, my, all my friends who are parents recognize that raising kids is a full-time job, um, and there's not a lot of time to do some other things that perhaps really needs to be done uh, by those who, who have the time and availability to do so. And then uh, Matthew 19 and Ephesians 5, in those passages, Jesus and Paul spoke of Christian marriage as a uh, lifelong partnership between a Christian man and woman for the purposes of enjoying intimacy, intimacy with each other, raising children together, and embodying the gospel. You see, for the follower of Jesus, or excuse me, the follower of Jesus should not approach God and Jesus's uh, scriptures and teachings with the question, what is permissible when it comes to my sexuality? What can I get away with? That's not the best question to be asking. Instead, followers of Jesus should ask the question, what is most wise and most good? What is God's best when it comes to my sexuality? God's best for how followers of Jesus should steward their sexuality is clear. Celibacy or Christian marriage with someone of the opposite sex. Um, I personally am not interested in settling for anything less than God's best. But even if I wasn't convinced logically of this biblical sexual ethic, I also couldn't ignore some of the evidence I see in my own life and the lives of others that a progressive sexual ethic, that an alternate way of thinking about this isn't God's best for us. I couldn't ignore the, the bad fruit in my life and in the lives of others who believe that God blesses same-sex Christian marriages in the same ways he blesses uh, opposite-sex Christian, uh, Christian marriages. 
at a 30,000 foot level, the, the average same-sex uh, partnership lasts much shorter than the average opposite-sex partnership, and the rates of adultery and infidelity are, are higher in same-sex marriages. Now, we can, we can have a conversation about whether those are the result of societal oppression, or whether those are the bad fruit of not following God's design, or whether it's both. My personal opinion, it's probably some of both, okay? But, but for me, what's much more convincing than that, the 30,000-foot level stuff, is that most of my gay Christian friends who adopted a progressive sexual ethic uh, stopped believing in God over a couple of years. Let me explain this. So at first, they did a little bit of theological acrobatics to say that maybe scripture could be read in a way that could support same-sex marriages, that God could be for same-sex marriages. But after a while, they admitted that Jesus' scriptures and teachings probably say what we thought they have said for 2,000 years. So they get to a place where they still believe that, that God is for uh, gay marriage, but, but the Bible doesn't d describe a God who's for gay marriage, so it, the, the Bible must be wrong. Um, the Bible must not be authoritative or binding for a modern people. But once they get to a place where Jesus' scriptures and teachings and the teachings of, of the church can't tell us who God is or who Jesus is, they realize they're just worshiping a God that they came up with. And what's the likelihood that the God of their imagination is even real? And listen, I don't want this for my gay friends. I want all of them to have robust relationships with, with God. But this is the fruit I see. This is what I see really commonly, at least anecdotally, um, is that when my friends um, adopt a progressive sexual ethic, when my gay, gay Christian friends adopt a progressive sexual ethic around these topics, um, that the fruit three, four, five years down the road is that they're not meaningfully Christian anymore. Um, I also see bad fruit in my own experiences um, that have been really convincing for me. Um, I think Satan told me for, for years that if I just had a romantic relationship with a man, everything would be better. I would be fulfilled. I would get what I was wanting. Um, and I wish I could have just trusted uh, the wisdom of some of my, my friends and the wisdom of, of my parents that, that those things weren't true, that that wasn't what was best for me. But I had to test it for myself. Um, and my own experience has been that romantic relationships with men were not everything I hoped they would be. There was good, some good in there, but they were also really painful. Uh, they were not as good as promised. And, and while I haven't experienced everything under the sun, so I'm not trying to argue that, I, that I've experienced it all and I know authoritatively, um, one experience was a pretty clear contrast between, between sin and beauty. It was a pretty clear example for me. Um, when I was in a particularly dark place in college, um, I connected romantically with another guy. And despite the fact that I was doing the things that movies told me would make me feel uh, most connected, most loved, most known than anything else, I felt pretty alone. And then after we stopped, the reality of what we had just done uh, rushed in, and, and we sat there on the floor, leaning against the wall, shoulder to shoulder, and we started crying together. We shared how uh, empty that felt for the both of us. We were crying and we were verbalizing how we were feeling. We shared how lonely we felt, how, how messed up this world was, and how disconnected from God we felt, how confused we were that God would let us be the way we were, and yet the connections that we had just shared didn't seem right for us. And you know, I, I didn't feel alone anymore. 
I didn't feel disconnected anymore. You see, the romantic connections that were promised to me would satisfy me failed. But then in stark contrast to that, the two of us confessing to each other and crying out to God satisfied us and felt more beautifully intimate than anything we had shared before. So no, even if I can convince myself logically of a progressive sexual ethic, I couldn't get past all of the bad fruit that I've seen. But admittedly, there's also bad fruit of a traditional sexual ethic, of a biblical sexual ethic. Um, my gay Christian friends who are trying to steward their sexualities according to this biblical sexual ethic that I've described, they're lonely. They're struggling with temptation. Uh, and, and this affects their relationships with God and, and the work out in their communities that they want to be doing. And I think this is because our, our churches have done a pretty crummy job of teaching about sexual stewardship and loving uh, and serving people like me. I think that's maybe the double burden of gay Christians. Churches don't know how to love us well yet, and the alternatives culture offers still aren't good for us either. And that sucks. Yet that doesn't make something that's bad for me good for me. That doesn't change something from being a sin to being edifying to God. Why is this the way God made things? I don't know. I wish he would have made it a different way. But at the end of the day, it's, it's not my job to question what God does or tell him how to do his job. I've just got to trust that God knows best for me and to obey his teachings. So I don't think the solution to the bad fruit is to abandon a biblical sexual ethic because I, I think there's even worse fruit of a progressive sexual ethic. No, I think the solution is for communities like this to learn how to better embody this biblical sexual ethic in a way that produces good fruit for gay people. That's what leaders from your community have been up to this weekend. They've been identifying how ethnos could better serve gay people and offer family to them. And that's why I'm here this weekend, because your community is committed to doing what it takes to help gay people truly belong and thrive according to God's teachings. Now, before I share some uh, suggestions about how straight people can better love their gay friends and how gay people can thrive, I want to pause and give us some time to have conversations at our tables. Um, in particular, I'd like to invite you to consider the following questions uh, up on the screen. Um, what did conversation about sex and sexuality look like in your church, your life, growing up and recently? Were they healthy, not healthy? So take seven or eight minutes to discuss this at your tables, and then we'll, we'll gather back together and I'll, I'll share a little bit more and, and wrap up. All right, go. Yeah, so, and I want to reiterate, uh, as you kind of already said earlier, this is the beginning of conversation. Uh, it's okay if you disagree with a number of the things that I said, uh, and I think it's important for us as, as people who are uh, on, on our different spiritual journeys and in different places in that journey to have these kinds of conversations, so I'm glad they're starting. Um, yeah, so I want to wrap up with sharing, um, with sharing some practical advice for everybody. Um, so first I want to speak to the straight people in the room, and I want to give five suggestions. Uh, the first is to do your homework, so to speak. Uh, we all need to know how to speak into these topics in theologically accurate and compassionate ways. Whether it's conversations with coworkers or at Ethnos or with family members, uh, how you speak about this matters. Your words can either point, point people to the love and lordship of Jesus, or it can become a barrier to gay people knowing God or enable painful choices. 
But I want to encourage you not to make the gay friends in your life be your teachers. Instead, I want to encourage you to do your own homework, so to speak. Uh, I'll send some reading suggestions through UConn, but if you only read one book, I'd encourage you to read uh, Single Gay and Christian by Greg Coles. I think it's a great introduction. We've got some, some people who have read the book, maybe you've met, met Greg himself. He's a really good guy. Okay, very cool. Uh, so yeah, read the book if you haven't, uh, and I'll send over some other suggestions if you're looking for something to read after that. Um, okay, so the second is to ask gay people about their story. So do your own homework, but also ask gay people about their story. Um, lean into the specific gay people in your life uh, that you love because you want to know their story better. Ask the gay people in uh, your lives uh, to share with you. Ask them about what's been painful about their story, what's been beautiful about their story. You'll likely find that they're carrying uh, more wounds than you were expecting. And I think asking people about their story loves gay people well because I feel more known when people ask me about my story. And when I share my story, get to share my story with friends, I feel less shame. Um, and when I get to hear people hear my story and react with love, I feel less different. So it's, it's really helpful to ask people about their stories uh, and get to know them better that way. Third, um, help gay people find family. We're all created for intimacy with God and other humans. We all need that in spiritual, emotional, and physical ways. Gay people in particular often feel ostracized from their biological family and may feel like the best way for them to walk out their sexuality is celibacy. So they really need this community to be their family. So help them find family. Establish uh, rhythms with the gay people in your life. Invite them over for dinner. Maybe go on vacations or do holidays together. Um, perhaps even have them live in your homes. We all need family. Help the gay people in your life find family. Uh, fourth, uh, let's seek Jesus together. Ultimately, this world is broken, and we won't be able to avoid uh, enduring pain in this life. We can't escape loneliness fully. We can't escape the brokenness of this life fully. Uh, and none of us will be able to meet our, our needs for intimacy and connection fully or finally in this lifetime. We can only ultimately find hope in God. And the only way we can learn to accept a little bit of the brokenness in our life is by praying together is by studying God's word together, is by worshiping together, is by seeking Jesus together. Um, so do that together. And then fifth, uh, trust God. As it is with anyone in your life, we need to know what's our job and what's God's job. Our job is to love people and hold them accountable where they've invited us to um, and seek Jesus together to help them with their immediate needs. And then we leave the rest up to God. It's not our job to change people's minds. That's God's job. He's wiser than us. He has better timing than us. Uh, it's not our job to save people. That's God's job. It's not our job to define the schedule on which our friends will make Jesus the Lord of every part of their life. That's God's job. So know your part, do your part, and trust God with the rest. Okay, and last but not least, I want to share um, something with the, the gay people in the room. I've got three suggestions for y'all. And these are less prescriptive or commands in any kind of way, just sharing some takeaways from my own story. First, I want to encourage you to follow Jesus no matter the apparent cost. I know it's hard and it's unfair, but following God's teachings, at least in my experience, are, are better than the alternative. 
I've shared already my uh, personal experiences and the consistent experiences of gay people around me. So I guess I just hope some of y'all can learn from uh, my mistakes. I know the feeling of trying to steward your sexuality according to a biblical sexual ethic and feeling lonely and perhaps even depressed and crying out to God, God, this, poss this couldn't possibly be your best for me. And yet, for the gay Christian, in order to submit your life fully to God and find the most richness and beauty in this life, I've seen that I've had to accept some hard things. We see that it's unfair and unjust. We see that it will probably continue to be that way. We see that we could reasonably use that to justify doing whatever we want. But we're convinced that God knows better for us than the wisdom of the age. We're convinced that following Jesus will be worth the cost. We're convinced that picking up our crosses will be better. No matter how painful, no matter how much suffering. Because it is in following Christ's example by taking on suffering for a purpose that we will find ourselves and find the God who we were created to be in relationship with. You might ask, well, then what's the point of suffering? Uh, I don't suggest pointless suffering, meaningless suffering, so I'm not suggesting that. I, I can't answer that question for every gay Christian, but I'll say for me, uh, the, the, the challenges in my life have helped me better see the pain of people of color and immigrants and poor people and the mentally ill so much better. I want to fight for them, and it helps me fight for other gay people in ways that I never would have if I were straight or if I had not accepted the suffering. I have fully accepted that I cannot undo the pain that I have experienced, and things probably won't change in churches fast enough for me to experience something meaningfully better in my lifetime. But I can spend my life, I can suffer, so that the next generation of gay teens experiences something radically better than I did. And that's worth it. A hundred times that's worth it. I would choose that life over and over again. So, so please, follow Jesus, no matter the apparent cost, because I'm at least convinced that it's worth it. Um, second, seek out family. I gave this suggestion to the straight people, and I want to give the same suggestion here. Um, we're all created for intimacy with God and for other humans. We need that in spiritual, emotional, and physical ways. None of us can make it through this life alone. And that's no less true of gay people. So please don't be afraid or ashamed of asking others in this community to be family for you. Ask them to be a part of your lives. You, you could even try to start an intentional Christian community with single and married folk. Whatever you do, find family. And I'll add one piece of advice that I've found helpful. Uh, I've seen that if I want to be a part of my married friends' lives, particularly if they have children, I've got to be willing to inconvenience myself to be a part of their family on, on their terms. Because despite the challenges of singleness, uh, raising children is a different kind of hardship that I probably will never know. So, go find family. And then third, last, uh, I wanna encourage you to find a way to integrate your sexuality instead of serving it or, or, or shaming it. It's probably obvious why I, why I would discourage gay Christians from letting their sexuality dictate the priorities of their life. And I'll note that straight Christians do this just as often although in ways that maybe we've become blinded to. There's an idolatry of romance among straight Christians combined with an acceptance of no-fault divorce and remarriage that straight Christians should find much more troubling than f rainbow flags and unicorns. So I'll speak to the other, integrating your sexuality instead of being ashamed of it. Um, for a long time, I tried to pretend like I 
was just like every other straight person. That there wasn't anything different about my story or more difficult about the prospects before me. Uh, but that just minimized my pain and gave me no space to mourn the injustice in this world. It also nurtured homophobia in my own heart. I first started integrating my sexuality by sharing about it, by sharing my story. That helped uh, remove a lot of shame and helped me identify in helpful ways with how I was different and how God was seeking to redeem that for, for my good and his glory. Uh, then I started recognizing that my story was different, and, and there were ways that I felt more connected to gay people than to straight people. And I gave myself permission to experience that affinity. Uh, for me, that looked like calling myself gay, seeing myself connected to the gay civil rights movement, seeing myself connected to the hate crimes against gay people, and giving myself permission to enjoy gay artists and, and gay cultural elements. Again, Christ is the uh, only person who sits on the throne of my life, and everything I do is submitted to his wisdom. And at the same time, there are beautiful aspects of gay culture as a minority culture born out of oppression that are healthy for me to connect with, that strengthen my faith, that help me better empathize with others. Thank you guys so much for your hospitality this weekend uh, and for, for the couple that's been also been letting me uh, stay in their house this weekend. They're not here this uh, lunch this time, but I'll see them this afternoon. That's all been really helpful. Um, I want to say I'm really impressed by the leaders that y'all have in your community. Uh, they're people to be a proud of, to be proud of. So I look forward to returning, um, and I think next time Yukon and I are going to do a bit of a Q and A, um, zooming in on some more specific questions uh, and topics. So if there's something that you'd like for us to discuss, uh, please let Yukon know, and hopefully we'll get to bring that up next time. Um, I think he's got some uh, suggestions about uh, some, some lunch follow-up we might do this week and, and then a month from now as well when I'm here, so I'll let you kind of share about that. But let me close us in prayer, if you guys would bow your heads. God, please empower the straight people in this room to seek your understanding of these topics and to love gay people well. And please help this community come around gay people in this room so that they can enjoy the best things you have to offer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, like I said, when we started, uh, many of you will probably agree with some parts and disagree with other parts. I have a feeling nobody in this room would probably be able to say, I agree with everything he says. And I also don't think anyone in this room would say, I disagree with everything he says. I think it's a mix, and this is a process, like I mentioned. It's a process of trying to understand self, God, culture, community. Despite these big questions, despite some of these things, I do think God is probably still, even today, trying to communicate with us in this moment, trying to invite us to respond to him in some way. I think Peter has already given some great suggestions on how we might respond to God, but I want to give us a brief moment to just pause and ask ourselves, God, how, what is it you want from me today? So let me just say a word of prayer to close us. God, we are thankful for this time. We're thankful for this important conversation for us as we think about family. What does it mean to be family together? Would you help us, help us to be a family for all in our city, in our community, as we look to follow you, Jesus, and understand your vision for our lives? Thank you so much for this time, and it's through Jesus we pray.
Amen. Thanks again for joining us for today's conversation. For more information about Ethnos New Brunswick, please visit us at ethnosmp.com.